Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Redeemer Church. Redeemer Church is located in Fate, Texas, and her mission is to share the gospel, shape disciples, and send missionaries into the surrounding communities and across the globe. We hope that this week's message will bring glory to God by building you up and results in you looking more and more like Jesus himself. If you're a guest with us, I just want to uh, turn your attention to the guest card that's either on your seat or around you somewhere. Um, it's also uh, a QR code in front of the, one of the chairs in front of you, so if you can scan that, you'll have an online version of this. Um, and uh, there's also a place for you to uh, put prayer requests on there, and you know, we consider if you have something that's on your heart, whether it's a prayer or praise, please uh, jot it on there and put it in the box back there. We'll be um, we'll consider it a privilege to pray with you and for you uh, as you kind of uh, walk with the Lord. Um, one of the things that, um, one of the other things that we typically do uh, the beginning of um, this time is also dismiss the kids, but being the third Sunday, we're going to have our uh, kids with, in here with us today. So um, it's going to be a little noisy, but um, probably mine's probably going to be more noisy, but so we're just going to... Um, Roll with it. Um, let me uh, pray for us as we kind of move into this uh, time of uh, teaching. Father, we thank you for this time again as we uh, move into this time of opening your word and listening and hearing from you. We pray that uh, your word will go forth and uh, that it will bear fruit, that it won't em- return empty. We pray for each of our hearts and our minds that we uh, will be open to you and that your Holy Spirit will be uh, working in our lives and in our hearts, that we will be sensitive to what you have to say and that we will be obedient to that. And as we look at and learn and as we look to be faithful to you and glorify you with our lives, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so as we uh, were, the elders were planning the uh, fall sermon series, we were kind of thinking and praying and planning. Uh, a couple of the- themes had uh, come up on the list, and uh, one of the themes that uh, kind of we all landed on was the theme of hope, um, you know, kind of thinking about what is this, uh, what is, what should we as believers think about hope, and um, I know we could all use a little bit of hope, right, uh, given what's happening in the world, but the idea was to kind of explore what it meant for us to have hope, what does it mean for us to be a hopeful congregation, and what does the Bible teaches about hope, and how does that differ from how the world talks about hope? And so that's kind of what we'll explore over the next few weeks, and probably the next few months, till we get to Advent, right? Christmas is right around the corner, right? September is flying fast, uh, but we'll be in this theme till, till we get to Advent and then um, move into an Advent series. But so again, for the next few weeks, we'll kind of t- uh, trace this theme of hope throughout the different books of the Bible, different characters in the Bible, um, and we'll kind of look at what, is, uh, hope, what did hope look like in their lives, um, how did hope, what role did hope play in their lives, and what, is, what does that mean for us today, and what can we learn from it. So our prayer as we kind of were preparing and thinking was that we as a congregation would uh, be empowered with hope, be empowered with this hope that the Bible talks about, and that we will be en- encouraged uh, and be hopeful no matter what season of life we find ourselves in. All right, so I think uh, it probably uh, is prudent to kind of look at what we mean by hope uh, as we are going to look at as we uh, begin this series. Uh, And so I just want to kind of, you know, talk through a little bit about um, definitions, about what is hope, what what, uh, hope is not. Um, Oftentimes words like hope and, uh, you know, peace and faith and um, God all kind of, you know, morph into have their own meanings. Uh, sometimes uh, over time they mean quite different things, and uh, even what it meant a few s- centuries ago, uh, it's probably not true today. And so we just want to kind of unpack that a little bit as we, before we move into our scripture for this morning. So oftentimes uh, hope in like the average day usage probably means something like a wish or a desire or something you're wanting or hoping would happen, right? Um, and, um, you know, living in Texas uh, a few weeks ago, we were all hoping for what? Rain, Rain yeah, right? Rain, hoping that the, uh, 
the cracks in our yard would close so our kids wouldn't fall, fall through. Um, right? Uh, football season started, so a lot of the Cowboy fans I hear are hoping for a Super Bowl this year. Uh, or you may hear, you know, people say, I hope I get that job, I hope I get the promotion. Uh, and if you're my son, uh, he's hoping for the dinosaurs to come back. So <laughs> he's here with us, so I won't tell you what I think about it, but uh, that's, that's his hope. But I saw this article about a school in St. Louis that decided to ask their kids what they hoped for at the start of a new school year. So on the first day, in mid-August, they put a board out, uh, blackboard outside the school and, uh, with a question, what is your hope? What is your hope? And so, as you can imagine, there was no, I want to take more tests, do more homework, we're not on the list, as you can imagine. Uh, but some of the answers were, to have a great year, to be happy, to have fun, to be included, make new friends, for people to like me, and my teachers to like me, to do good, I hope it feels like home. Uh, even the teachers, you know, had their own answers. Some of them were the kids, that the kids know anything is possible. I hope kids know how valued they are. I hope you feel you matter, you do, et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, these responses kind of capture what I'm, uh, the general use of how we think about the word hope. Um, and so words like hope and wish and desire are often interchangeably uh, used. But uh, this morning I want us to look at how the Bible talks about hope and the biblical idea of hope and how the biblical authors used, or used the uh, uh, word hope is quite different. Uh, so in biblical terms, hope actually represents an expectation of goodness, not just a wish or a desire. So hope is the anticipation of goodness. So according to Scripture, it's not a wish, it's not a desire for goodness, but it is an expectation for goodness to come. And so what that means practically for us is that hope is more of a habit or a posture that the heart takes of a something that we can take as believers, uh, a posture that we can take with our hearts as believers by anticipating goodness from God and having a confidence in the goodness of God. So, so you think about wishing for something, right? Um, when you wish for something, the emphasis is oftentimes on what? How hard you wish for something, right? or how, um, what you're wishing on. So oftentimes this, if your parents are little kids, which I am, um, I often hear something like, I really, 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 really want this, right? The really is repeated to emphasize what? How badly they want it, how badly they want it. Um, and oftentimes, um, that's how we think about we, uh, desire or think about hope. It's something that we really, 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 really want. But in contrast, the emphasis on bi in biblical hope is not just uh, and uh, it's not just how badly we want it or um, how much we desire it, but rather it is in the person of Jesus. The emphasis of hope is on Christ's character, His goodness, and His kingship. So as we expect and anticipate goodness from God, it means that we as believers are hoping in God. This is what it means to hope God, to expect and anticipate goodness irrespective of our circumstances, irrespective of what we desire or irrespective of what the evidence is telling us. We put our hope in God by expecting goodness from Him. So again, differentiating hope from uh, wishful thinking is one thing, but it also is quite different from positive psychology or positive thinking or Optimism even, you know, optimism, optimism may, be, may or may not be a good thing, but they're not how the Bible describes hope. So if you think about optimism, for example, it's very circumstantial, isn't it? Right? What, do we, what do we mean when we say, ask somebody to be optimistic or um, you know, be positive about it? What does it mean? It, it essentially means take a, oftentimes a bad situation or something negative and look at the positive aspects of it or create a narrative that is a positive spin on it. Oftentimes that's what we think about when we think about asking somebody to be optimistic about something. And that is different from hope because unlike optimism, which is circumstantially based, as you can imagine, hope is transcends circumstances. Why? Because it is in Christ, right? It is in a person that we hope. And it is not dependent, so biblical hope is not dependent on what the circumstances are that we find ourselves. Okay, so that's kind of some uh, definitions of hope and how it dif differs from uh, wishing or um, you know optimism, etc. 
um, I, I do want to look at how the Bible talks about hope. I mean, it would probably be uh, helpful to see what words they use, uh, the biblical authors use for uh, hope. And so there's two words uh, that we see used in the Hebrew uh, scriptures, and that's yahal and kava. It's back on the slide if you want to take notes. And both essentially mean to wait. They both mean to wait. And so while both words mean uh, to wait, uh, kava has a specific connotation that I think is helpful for us to understand biblical hope. And so now these words are interchangeably used throughout the Psalms, throughout the Old Testament uh, by the Hebrew writers. Uh, but the idea for kava is uh, essentially capturing uh, something very unique. Um, so think of it as uh, a cord or rope. Um, when you have a cord or rope and you try to pull it, not one of those bungee cords that never breaks, but you know, like a normal one, right? You hold it on both ends and you pull and pull and pull. What happens? It goes into tension, right? It's in tension when the rope is pulled. And as you pull it, what eventually happens when the tension builds, builds, and builds? It breaks, right? Uh, and so the pulling of the rope creates tension, and it builds tension. But what does it also do? It generates an anticipation in, your heart, in, your, uh, in you, right? As you're watching the rope take on more and more tension, what do we expect? We expect it to snap. That anticipation of that tension breaking is what the biblical authors mean by hope when they use the word kavar. It's that, uh, it essentially describes that waiting period. It's that tense expectation. It's that um, uh, anticipating period. And so the waiting period of when you wait and anticipate for the tension to release is oftentimes what, how the biblical authors describe hope. So we know the rope is going to snap at some point. We're expecting you to do so. Not we're not hoping, we're not, uh, not, we're not unsure about it. We know it will happen, even though we're not sure of the exact how much tension we need to put on it. We know that eventually it will break. And so that anticipation is the best description of hope from, uh, from what I see in the scriptures. That make sense? So as we, as we, as with that kind of definition in mind, let's kind of look at uh, the story of Abraham. That's where we're going to be uh, today, uh, kind of looking at Abraham and, his, uh, and the story of Abraham as he, um, as he interacts with God in looking at the theme of um, uh, hope in his, uh, in his own life. So um, I would like to mention um, in, uh, I want to say, last fall and early spring this year, we, we walked through Genesis 1 through 11 verse by verse. So we, there was a more of a um, verse by verse study that we completed in the spring of this year. So we covered Genesis 1 through 11. And so if you're new here or missed that or would like a refresher, I would highly encourage you to go check that out. Uh, it's on our website. Uh, but today I want to just give a kind of a, let's just say, a 100,000-foot summary of, in like 10-sentence capture, what's happening between Genesis 1 uh, all the way through Genesis uh, 11, and because we're going to pick up in Genesis 12 today. But I just want to give you a little bit of a, a context before, you, um, before we look at the passages. So Genesis 1, we know uh, Adam and God creates Adam and Eve, puts them in the garden. Uh, Adam and Eve fail. They, uh, are, they don't want to trust God. Their hope is not in God. They want to take control of their own destiny. And so they disobey God. They're exiled from the garden. And that starts a, a, um, a slow decline into a destruction. And so we see this, their children, Cain and Abel. The story just keeps going. Um, about failure and sin multiplying. And so God then restarts the plan uh, with Noah, who was 10 generations from Adam uh, and his children. And so God creates, asks Noah to um, create an ark, uh, you know, load up the animals, and to you know, trust God. And so um, Noah does that, uh, and God uh, essentially wipes the, generation, the sinful generation away. Uh, Noah, again, though, however, fails after he comes off the ark. He, he's drunk and falls into sin. And that starts another train wreck um, of human destruction that culminates in human beings uh, trying to reach God in the Tower of Babel by becoming gods themselves through their own pride, through their own wisdom, and through their own effort. So God has to step in again, scatter that generation because of their pride and arrogance. So that kind of takes us through the first essentially 10, uh, first 11 chapters of, uh, 10, 11 chapters of uh, Genesis. 
And so 10 generations from Adam, we get Noah. 10 generations from Noah, we get Abraham. And so that's what we're picking up today as we read the passage. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Now, I'm going to read uh, three passages today. Uh, Being a more of a topical study, I'm going to uh, look at a few different chapters. I didn't want to read all the way from Genesis 12 all the way through 22. I figured you guys want to go home at some point today. So I'm going to read uh, specific sections of Genesis, three chapters, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Um, here's what uh, the writer of Genesis says in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4 says, so Abraham went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took his, Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions and they had, that they had gathered and the people uh, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. So in this first passage we see God uh, calling Abraham uh, Abraham, um, and um, asking him to leave the land of his father, uh, the land that his family has lived in, uh, and to move. And God's promise here is that God was going to give the land that Abraham, uh, Abraham was uh, going, staying in or was going to. This is the land that God was going to show him and that God was going to give it to his offspring. So that's the first promise that we see that uh, God makes with uh, Abraham and how Abraham responds to it. Let's, let's look at uh, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Again, I'll be back on the screen here. But in Genesis 15, verse 1 says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to them, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So here, um, kind of the second movement in in Abraham's life is, God says, I'll give you the land, and to your offspring I'll give the land. A few chapters later, Abraham's like, That's good, God, but... I don't have an offspring. You haven't given me any. Uh, so are we talking about my uh, servant Eleazar? And uh, God's like, no, I'm going to give you a son. Um, and you will have a, uh, your offspring will, have, will multiply and be like the stars in the sky. And so that's essentially what uh, God promises Abraham in Genesis 15. And, God belie- uh, and Abraham believes him, as he says in verse 6, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay, the last passage for uh, I want to look at today is Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, verses 15 uh, through 21, God says, the writer of, Mo, uh, writer of Genesis, and God said to Abraham, as for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah will be her, shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, 
whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So in Genesis 17, we're essentially seeing um, the f- a result of Abraham and Sarah's unbelief. We'll talk a little bit about that. And Ishmael's in the picture. God's like, I'm going to bless you with a son, and he will be the one that I make a covenant with. And Abraham was like, God, Ishmael's already here. Can we just, you know, like, can we make him the heir that you make a covenant with? And God's like, nope, not my plan. I'm going to choose Isaac to be the awakeful of blessing to the nations. And so essentially that's kind of the theme that we see uh, in Genesis 17 and um, on. Okay, so I think brings kind of these three uh, sections kind of talk about Abraham and God and how God is interacting with Abraham. My first point this morning is really, uh, really that God is actually the, the, um, the rock of Abraham's hope. And so when you look at it, our first point this morning is God is faithful. God is faithful. What do I mean by that? So I just talked about the background of the passages, right? God starts the project of interacting with human beings and partnering with human beings with Adam and Eve. They fail. Then he, they try, he tries to do it in multiple generations. They fail, 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 fail. But God continues to be faithful to his children and his creation. He in, continues to invite them to partner with him. We see Noah and that failure, Noah's sons and the failure there, and it continues down the path. And I think it's... it's um, it's hard for us not to, um, it's, it's good, I could think, to, be, uh, to commend Abraham about his response, but I think it's hard for us to look at Abraham's response, but also really look at God's faithfulness, because as we think about Abraham's response, I think we have to figure out, first understand why was Abraham so confident in God's uh, promise? Why did Abraham respond as such? And I think it's because Abraham trusted that God was faithful, that God repeatedly um, invites us human beings in spite of our failures to partner with him. And so God's relentless faithfulness is the basis of our hope. And so, again, this has always been God's plan to partner with human beings. It's how he's operated with Adam, like I said. Uh, it was also his plan back uh, with Abraham, like we just saw. But it is also God's plan today to partner with human beings and his church to bring about his plan. He plans to partner with us as he works out the redemption of human beings. That means as the church, as the body of Christ, we are that group today. With Abraham, it was one family, and that family became a nation, but for us in the New Testament, as New Testament believers, the church, the body of Christ, is the vehicle through which God is working. That means the body of Christ this congregation, the Big C Church, we're all part of God's plan. And God is working in us and through us to bring about this redemption because he's faithful and he's good in spite of our failures. It doesn't mean it won't be messy, right? I mean, Abraham's journey was not messy. I didn't read all the passages here, but um, when you read the Genesis account, and I encourage you to do that, you see both Abraham and Sarah doubt God's goodness multiple times. Both of them try to help God, right? Speed up his timing, fix his timing, uh, help him out. And so multiple times in Abraham's journey as he, as he travels, as he makes this journey that God calls him to, uh, he tries to preserve his own life by lying about his wife. He's like, how can I have offspring if I'm dead? So let me, uh, you know, wager Sarah and her life so that I can still have an offspring. Sarah herself makes bad choices. She tries to help God by giving Abraham her servant and ends up in Ishmael. And so Sarah herself has her doubts. Um, we, have, we see about her, uh, her, we read about that also in, uh, in, different, uh, in the Genesis account. She's doubtful that she can get pregnant at 99. I, understandably so. But all of this gets them in lots and lots of trouble. It's messy. But God guess what, patiently works again and again and again and again. And eventually God, in his timing, gives Abraham and Sarah the son that he promised them. Abraham was about 100 years old. I don't bring that to um, uh, diminish what Abraham and Sarah did and their journey, right? Uh, That's not the point. Uh, The point is that God somehow always finds it... uh, 
finds it in him to work with us. Uh, I think I've used this analogy before. It's uh, as if uh, it's very similar to when my wife works with our kids to fold laundry, right? Very, very messy, right? Doesn't get done but halfway or so. But it is essentially important uh, for their character to learn to fold laundry, to take care of their own uh, stuff. But God, similarly, in spite of not, uh, doesn't often pick the most efficient way. He picks the slow way and partners with us in spite of our failures. And in respect to the messiness, this is what God's calling us to. And so the question I have this morning as I was thinking about this passage is, do we sense that calling? As believers, as a church, do we sense that God is calling us to be his hands and feet in this community? to be salt and light in this community, to be his hands and feet in your family, in your school, in your workplaces. God is still actively working in each of our lives because he's faithful. He has not given up on this project. And to say a word about just um, the local church, I think the uh, local church and church body oftentimes is messy too. It's boring, oftentimes feels manufactured, right? Uh, showing up probably feels like a ritual. If I'm being honest, I've been there in certain uh, seasons of my own life. And so the church on Sunday, the weekly Bible study, the weekly life group often feels repetitive. doesn't feel like God's doing anything. But the testimony of Scripture is that God is faithfully and actively at work in and through the church, in and through each of our lives. Now, Christians left and right have given uh, up on the local church because it's full of sinners and hypocrites. We have all kinds of substitutes that have popped up and to take place of it. But I just want you to know, last time I checked, God's plans still involve the local church. We may not be high on it, but God has high hopes for it. Uh, Jesus himself says in the Gospel of Matthew to his listeners and disciples, the second part of Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, I will build my church And what? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the local church, this body of believers is still in God's plan. This is, his plan hasn't changed. We may have new ideas and different ideas, but God's plan's been the same. God's building his church and building his believers and working through each of them to bring about his plan. So God is faithful and carrying out his plan of redemption through his people by working in us and through us. So what does that leave us? How are we to respond to God's faithfulness? It brings me to the second point that we respond by placing our hope in Him. We place our hope in God. So we can put our hope in Him just like Abraham. Uh, Abraham through his faults, like I just mentioned, were many, but he put his hope in God and God and responds to God in obedience. He leaves his family and his homeland behind and follows God's call. Now this is a very um, risky move uh, uh, from Abraham because in those days, in a commun- especially in a communal culture, uh, living, in, uh, living with your family was your source of security and sufficiency. It is how you uh, survived. It was essential to survival to have your family around. But Abraham risks that and follows God in obedience. Here's how uh, Paul puts it in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 and 22. And by the way, Abraham shows up multiple times in the New Testament, uh, in the New Testament writers. And so Paul, uh, describing Abraham's journey, puts it this way in Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, and I believe it's up there too. It says, in hope, he believed against hope. I mean, that itself is a whole sermon, but we're going to just read through that. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Did you catch what Paul is saying here? as he's reminding his reader about Abraham's response, Paul is saying that there was no evidence for Abraham to trust that he was about to have a son with Sarah, and that he was going to have an offspring that would eventually become a nation. 
and that his, his, uh, his family would be the vehicle that God uses to bring God's blessings to the world. But he did not allow his circumstances to dictate his response, but rather he believed in God and in God's word. And, and because he did that, he put his hope in God. Now, this, obviously, I know it sounds easier said than done, right? We look at, at the world and not to account for our circumstances. It's, it's a hard ask. Right? We look at the picture of the world. It's not pretty, right? We have earthquakes and fires and uh, pandemic and um, a sin is rampant and um, the, picture, the, the, the world is in chaos, to put it mildly. And there's very little reason for us to hope if you look at the circumstances. Very little reason for us to expect goodness. Very little reason to believe that God is working and that God is present. But let me encourage you this morning, like Abraham, that we should not let our circumstances dictate a response. I think that needs to be a posture that we continue to practice because like Abraham, we trust that God is faithful and that he's worthy of our hope. Whether we see it or not, God, through his people, is working out his plan. It may be slow, it may not be in our timing, it may not be to the extent that we want, but we trust in God, and we put our hope in God, and we should not waver in our perseverance. This is what Paul is teaching us here from Abraham's own life. And like Abraham, we're going to have our own failings, right? But God is working in our obedience and our disobedience. He's working in our uh, passionate pursuits and our half-hearted pursuits. He's working in our tired pursuits. God's working in, in us and in, in all of everything that we're doing to move his plan forward. And so when we put our hope in God, like Abraham did, we find the strength to keep persevering and it propels us forward. Let me give you a couple of ways that hope propels us forward. First, hope equips us when we're in the midst of problems, the midst of hard circumstances, loss of a loved one, loss of a job, sickness, health issues, marriage problems, parenting problems, whatever it is, hope equips us because hope is expecting God to be good and to know that God has good things in store for us. So when we trust that Jesus is in control, because remember, hope is in him, our emphasis of biblical hope is in him, his character, his kingship, his goodness. We trust that because Jesus is in control that he will bring about the good in every situation. And hope grows in us as we regularly exercise this muscle of putting our trust in Jesus. Second, hope propels us forward by keeping us from going down the doom scenarios. We've all been there, haven't we? Right? We hear about the loss of a job or sickness, and we wonder, is that going to be me? Is my family going to be that way? Is that my health going to end up that way? Am I going to lose my job? How, how are we going to make it through a recession? Right? Scenarios that we have no control over, but our minds kind of go down that doom trail, right? Fear starts creeping in. And it's a good time to talk about fear. Fear is actually the opposite of hope. Because if good, uh, hope is the anticipation of good, fear is the anticipation of evil. And so hope and fear don't, can't coexist. One drives out the other. So because fear is the anticipation of evil, we expect our future to not hold good things, but to hold bad things. We think about the worst case scenarios. But hope teaches us that irrespective of what the circumstances, God is in control. It gives us the strength and courage to look forward into the future, no matter how uncertain it seems. It keeps us from trusting ourselves for us to make it happen. And we keeps us from worrying about outcomes that we don't have any control over. Third, uh, hope propels us forward by giving us the freedom to be generous. Hope teaches us that we can be generous with our time and our money and our resources because God is going to meet my needs. We trust and are able to be generous wholeheartedly and follow God wholeheartedly because we don't have to worry about if we're going to have enough because we know God is in control. We know God is going to provide and our hope is in Him. So again, exercising hope 
allows you to be generous. And lastly, and I can keep going, uh, I just want to mention one, hope essentially increases your capacity to forgive because you don't feel that you have to set things straight every single time. When somebody has wronged you, we trust that God will set things straight and you don't have to hold a grudge against a brother or sister. You're able to let it go because we know that God is in control. I remember as I was preparing for the sermon, I remembered a story about uh, this family uh, in India. I grew up in the Middle East, if you didn't know, and so uh, we would oftentimes hear things that happened in India and America and such. But I remember hearing the story about uh, Graham Staines. Uh, um, I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, he was a missionary, an um, Australian missionary that lived in India uh, with his family. He, they had two boys and a girl, and um, and his wife, they lived in India, in the eastern part of India called Orissa, which is a state uh, in the eastern part of India. Um, unfortunately, on, the, on a fateful night um, of January 22nd, 1999, Graham Stewart Staines, along with his two sons, Philip, 10 years old, and Timothy, 6 years old, was burned to death in India by members of a Hindu nationalist group. Graham and his sons uh, were sleeping. Uh, they had just gone down a camp. They were on their way back, but they decided to sleep in their station wagon in between their journey. When in, in the middle of the night, a mob of 50 people showed up with axes and um, implements and attacked the vehicle and set it on fire, trapping them inside and burning them to death. And so Staines and his son uh, woke up, but they were not allowed, obviously they tried to escape, but they were prevented by, from doing so by the angry mob. And so essentially, uh, remember clearly, vividly still seeing pictures of this in the newspaper of just this uh, burned station wagon completely obliterated by the fire. So while this is a horrific story and a religious persecution of Christians in India, in certain parts of India is not unheard of, the reason I remember the story is how, uh, is because of how Graham's wife responded to the frenzy following this killing. Now, it was a national news and caused a lot of um, uproar in India. Um, but in her affidavit before the commission on the death of her husband and two sons, Gladys Stain stated this thing, stated this way, the Lord God is always with me to guide me and help me to accomplish the work of Graham. But I sometimes wonder why Graham was killed. And what also made his assassins behave in such a brutal manner on the night of the 22nd and 23rd of January 1999. It's far from my mind to punish the persons who was responsible for the death of my husband, Graham, and my two children. But it is my desire and hope that they would repent and be reformed. Even as a little boy, I remember being moved by the news. I mean, I, I don't even think I was a believer at that point. But I remember hearing the news of the incident and hearing her response and just being uh, shocked, because even as a child, I could not fathom what empowered somebody whose loved ones were ruthlessly murdered to not want to punish the perpetrators. What drives a person in that scenario to not grow hopeless and in, get in despair, but rather to have hope and to desire the salvation of her husband's killers and continue to serve in that community? What fueled Abraham and his trust was this hope that Gladys is uh, reflecting here. It is this hope and the expectation that God would come through, that God would set things straight. And just like Abraham was used by God to bring the promise of God's blessing to the entire world, Gladys, as each of us as believers, the church and every believer, can have hope that God will work through you and in your lives to bring about his plans if we put our hope in him. My third point for today uh, is that God always fulfills his promise. So we begin by looking how God is faithful, how God, uh, Abraham responds to that uh, faithful God by putting his hope in him. And, to, and I wanna finish with this point about how God comes through for Abraham and what that means for us. As you read in the passages, God essentially fulfills all the promises that he gave Abraham. He gives him a son through Sarah. Um, he's, uh, he, um, Isaac, becomes a, Isaac has two sons himself, Esau and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons that eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel, and the family then just keeps growing. 
We actually also, uh, we obviously know that uh, one of uh, Jacob's sons, Judah, uh, would also be the, the grandfather of, uh, oh, oh, sorry, through the lineage of Judah would be where Jesus, uh, God's own son, would come into the world. And Jesus himself would reconcile the world through his life, death, and resurrection. And so Abraham's prom the promises that God made Abraham are, were fulfilled one after the other. Now looking back, Abraham and Isaac were long gone before any of these promises, well, Isaac was there, but long gone before all of the promises were fulfilled, right? Before God could use Abraham's family as the chosen people, before all of the land uh, came to Abraham's family. So was Abraham's hope in God justified? I think the answer is resounding yes. Even though it was long after they were gone, God was faithful in his promises. God fulfilled the promises that he gave Abraham. This gave the generations of uh, Israelites uh, something to look back to. They followed Abraham and the courage that Abraham had uh, and the trust that Abraham in God. The nation of Israel went through lots and lots of hardships, their own mistakes, their own captivity, their own uh, disappointments. The picture was bleak for most of that time. But they themselves looked at Abraham and how God was faithful to Abraham and trusted that God would come through for them too. And um, God continues to do that for us today too. Because God not only fulfilled Abraham's promise, he also fulfilled his promise to us to send a savior and to save us from our own sins. As New Testament believers, we are benefactors of that promise too, aren't we? How God was gonna reconcile the world was a mystery to generations prior to Christ's coming and dying on the cross. But we on the other side now are able to see God's plan in, uh, God's plan in place, God working out his plan. And we have the benefit of seeing the fulfillment of that plan by knowing Jesus and how he died on the cross for our sins, rising again from death and defeating sin and death. But we not only have promises that have been fulfilled, God has also given us a promise for us to look forward to, right? And that is the promise of Christ's second return. Because God always fulfills his promise, we can be certain of this return too. We are to endure and look forward to the second coming of our Savior. When he comes back, he tells us that he will set the world straight. He will, make, he will heal the brokenhearted, that he will bring it all back into right standing that he will heal, he, excuse me, heal everything that is broken in the world. He will put an end to the chaos and he will reign supreme. And like Abraham, it may not be fulfilled in our own lifetimes, but we can trust that God in his perfect time will bring about his work in completion. Paul and the other apostles referred to this constantly as they were writing to the early church facing severe persecution, facing severe doubts about if they should continue as Christians. Paul would constantly remind them to not waver in their hope and, and commit, commitment because they were living in the last days. He asked them to live and follow Jesus and be committed to him and put their hope in him as if Christ's return was imminent. And so it is for us. As believers, we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. And I, as believers, we should not take that lightly. I think we should continue to uh, practice putting our hope in Christ when we hear stories of disasters, when we hear that the circumstances are not favorable. In the meantime, God's working his plan out. He's working in our children, he's working in our marriages, he's working in our communities, he's working in our neighbors. So when we face our trials and difficulties and the busyness of life overwhelms us, busyness of work and ministry and church and life, we can find comfort that God is working out his plan and that we can trust him. So let us put our hope in him. Therefore, as we are reconciled, we who are reconciled to God has been, have been given a living hope and an inheritance that is waiting for each of us. The trials and difficulties that we're facing are in fact purifying us to reveal the genuineness of our faith. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 1, chapter 1 and verse 13, which I highly encourage you to read 1 Peter 1, the whole chapter is, is phenomenal when it comes to this topic of hope. But Peter writes this, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, 
set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, setting your hope fully on the grace that will be finally and fully realized at the revelation of Christ when in his second coming. All right, let's land this plane. How do we nurture this hope that we just talked about? I think as believers, if, I think it's, we have all been there that, uh, where we've realized if hope is not flamed or kept alive, it will die. We've all experienced this. We've all had seasons of life where we've taken our eyes of Jesus and our hope is in people or our relationships, our children, our money, our jobs, and when those things get taken away, we find ourselves empty. So the first and primary way that we grow hope and um, keep it alive is to stay connected to the triune God through prayer and scripture. Praying and meditating on scripture is the primary way that the early Christians uh, kept their hope alive. Having regular times where you're coming to God in prayer and meditating on his words reinforces the trust and goodness of God in our lives. We're able to surrender our fears, our futures, and learn to put our hope in God. And we all, again, I'm not saying anything new, but the Holy Spirit often, we've all experienced this, where the Holy Spirit often uses these times to remind us about God's faithfulness in the past, in each of our lives specifically, but also in giving Jesus his son as an evidence of his faithfulness. Second, we keep this hope alive by uh, stepping out of our comfort zones. Again, because hope is a muscle that needs to be exercised, we need to regularly look for ways to exercise it. And what do I mean by exercise? It basically means to take steps of faith. God is probably calling you and your family to something right now that maybe you've put to the side. It's like maybe later, maybe another day, maybe not now, maybe never. But how is our response? What, what's keeping us from stepping out in faith? Now, all of us are guilty of staying in our comfort zones, uh, me included, right? We're overprotective of our time, of our resources, our relationships. We're often unwilling to take steps of faith and be vulnerable. But for our hope to develop and to grow like Abraham's, we must take those steps of faith and trust God and be obedient to him. I remember my own life, like I mentioned, the Holy Spirit has a constant remind me of this. So I'm preaching to myself here. I realized uh, a few weeks ago, um, kind of came to mind that God often likes to work um, in our lives when we're outside our comfort zones, you know, at the end of our rope. Um, as I was kind of thinking about that, I remember the Holy Spirit uh, reminding me or convicting me uh, that the goal of my entire adult life is to have a bigger comfort zone. Right, bigger bank account, secure, stable family. It's always been bigger, bigger, bigger. So I don't have to face or be outside my comfort zone, and it's forced me to reevaluate my own obedience. So can I encourage you to trust Jesus and step out in obedience to what He's calling you to? And finally, uh, get in community with other believers. Uh, this is again how the early church kept their own uh, hope alive. God calls us to live in community so we, see, we can see how God not only works in our own lives, but that we can encourage others in their own walks. See, hope is like a reservoir of uh, strength. Sometimes that strength is for you and your trials, but sometimes it's to encourage others in your community. And this is how we as believers sharpen each other and comfort each other and walk with each other in this journey. And this is how Christ expects us to spur each other on. So make a commitment if, you're, if you already have and to get plugged into a regular and faithful community of believers, whether it's here or somewhere else, whether it's finding a life group, whatever it is for you, that next step, can I encourage you to take that this morning? So as the band comes up and we close this morning, um, let me leave you with these words uh, that let me encourage you to choose hope even when there's no sign in your current circumstances that things will get better, whatever the situation is. Look at God, back at God's faithfulness, past faithfulness, and let it motivate you and ha- so that you will have hope for the future. And may the Holy Spirit fill us with a deep reservoir of hope to sustain us as we look to him. Because if we pers- persevere in trusting the Lord, 
Our hope will not disappoint us. I pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for this time this morning as we've listened to what it means to have hope in you. It begins with recognizing that you are a faithful God, that you've patiently worked with us and invite us to, to be partners with you even when we often want to take control on our own hands and go about our own ways and execute our own plans, you are patient and you patiently invite us back in and reconcile us back in. We pray for, I pray for each of, the, uh, each of the families that are represented here, each of the believers that are represented here that you will continue to work in their hearts, that you will point into their hearts where they themselves need to make a, put their hope in you. Hey, this is Pastor Shannon, and I want to thank you for tuning in today. I trust that the Lord has spoken to you through His Word, and if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I invite you to trust Him today. If you have questions about what that means, reach out to us through our website, RedeemerRC.com, and one of our pastors will be in touch. In addition, if you would like to partner with Redeemer in her mission to share, shape, and send, you can support our ministry by visiting RedeemerRC.com forward slash give. Now, this podcast is not intended to replace your active participation in the life of a local church, but tune in next week as we continue to lift high the name of Jesus through every paragraph, passage, and page of the Bible.